Welcome back to another episode of the Sounder at Heart podcast. I am Jeremiah O'Shan. I'm Mark Kastner. This is the Sounder at Heart podcast. Joined by my co-hosts, Mickey Turner, Susie Rantz, Tim Foss, Beth Mantle, and Dave Clark. This has been an extremely weird podcast. How are they going to be able to handle that? Just the bottom line is they don't have an answer to that. There was never really a time when I was super concerned. Seattle did fine. There's a reason they got signed to first-team contracts. Very special guest, Brian Spencer, head coach of Seattle Sounders. You know who he is. Brian... How are you doing? I'd start off, Jeremiah, by saying one thing, and this isn't my quote. I have to attribute this to Tom Dutra. He always says, tough times don't last, tough people do. Welcome back to another episode of the Sounder at Heart podcast. I am Jeremiah O'Shan. Joining me today is special guest, Adam Elder. He's written a book called New Kids in the World Cup, that focuses on the journey and sort of the event of the 1990 World Cup, which I don't know how how familiar all of you are of that tournament, but it is it was the first time the U.S. had qualified in what 50, 40 years, uh, 40 years, yeah. And it and it had a, a and the reason part of the reason I wanted to have Adam on is because there was a pretty big uh, Pacific Northwest influence on on the on that team. Um, and you know, first of all, welcome to the show, Adam. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Yeah. Yeah, And you're, even though you're in San Diego, you are a, you are, you have a lot of experience in the Pacific Northwest and Seattle in particular. I do. I'm from Oregon and went to school at the UW for a couple of years and, uh, loved every minute of it and, uh, started regretting (laughs) the decisions I made as soon as I decided to leave and, and, and finish up school at Oregon. I love Seattle and, uh, looking forward to coming back. And now you're slumming it in the perfect weather of San Diego. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I guess that that part ended up working out. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. So let's let's just start here. Uh, 1990 is a lifetime, a literal lifetime ago, I think. Uh, yeah. For for in the world of U.S. soccer, but it really is. It's it's a it's a great mar- demarcation line, and I think in a lot of ways we don't even think of 1990 as part of the, the modern history of U.S. soccer, which I think most people in their mind think of as the '94 World Cup and and everything that came after it. But what was the state of U.S. soccer during you know heading into the 1990 World Cup? Oh man, there. I mean, that's that's a really interesting question because for for so many years, uh, U.S. soccer was just this this tiny little operation. There were so uh, for a while it was run out of someone's apartment, and then they had like a tiny like one of those executive suites, I guess, in the Empire State Building. Uh-huh. And then at some point, I believe in the '80s, they moved <laughs> they moved to Colorado Springs uh, to be part of the U.S. Olympic Training Center. Um, and the main advantage of that was uh, free free rent, free office space, something like that. There were like six employees. It was run by a husband and wife, um, <laughs> and Keith Walker from from England, who was a former uh, referee in England. Um, and it was just it was just this tiny little operation um, that was overseeing what you know a lot of people considered a um, a, a, a youth game, really. I mean, even though you know the the North American Soccer League had had uh, come and gone and as, as had Pele. Um, and that's obviously, you know, a whole other conversation, but it was 
crucially, to, to your point, it crucially, it was run by a man named Warner Fricker, who's the president. He wasn't based in Colorado Springs, but that's, you know, kind of kind of how things go. Um, he was a builder from the Philadelphia air, uh, area. Um, he was an immigrant to the United States from the German speaking part of Yugoslavia and just this fiercely patriotic guy, classic sort of self-made man. Um, who had played for the United States uh, in, I believe, the, the 1960s. I, I can't remember exactly. Um, and was very active in uh, the, his, the ethnic leagues around Philadelphia. And he had big dreams for American soccer. And he was, um, you know, by all accounts, a visionary and really wanted to see American soccer respected and taken seriously. And basically just be a whole lot better. And he made it happen. And, you know, his, his dreams came true. He didn't, he wasn't president for nearly long enough to, to see it happen. And, and he didn't live long enough um, to, to, to see how far we've come, but uh, he and, and others around really got the ball rolling on in what was, you know, the, just this kind of tiny operation. It was, it was almost like cute and quaint in a way, you know, they would have uh, employees that tell me they would have like potlucks and stuff like that there. <laughs> well, and it, it's interesting because as you probably know, uh, up until recently, uh, U.S. soccer operated out of soccer house, which I didn't, and I didn't actually realize was a little house in Chicago that they had sort of like an old mansion that they had sort of like rehabbed into a, into a house. And I think a lot of that was born out of, this wanting to stay true to the roots of, of U.S. soccer. I don't I don't know if that was a purposeful decision or not, uh, but now they're, I guess, they're moving into like proper offices uh, finally uh, ahead of the 2026 <laughs> World Cup. But um, U.S. soccer, it's, it's an interesting, you know, that is a, a funny thing because we, we tend to think of these organizations in the way that you might think of like the NFL or the NBA, which are these big professional organizations and they have these right. very modern uh, systems. But then you look at the way that soccer has and continues to operate, uh, certainly outside of the club game, and it is kind of like secret handshakes and uh, and you know you wouldn't be surprised to learn that if they were wearing robes and, and gathering in in uh, dark basements. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's it's and and that and the, but the, and U.S. soccer really was just a tiny like a, a really tiny operation for a long long time. It was a tiny operation and it was so, you know, th there are, there are a few people who, I mean, so how to say it? making a career out of soccer in America wasn't, certainly wasn't for everyone for a long time. And, you know, there were a few um, people, I mean, there, there were certainly people who did it and, and there's a lot of names that, that we know today, you know, one of whom was the 1990 coach, Bob Gansler. Another was um, Dr. Joe Macknick, who we all know, um, on television, who was the goalkeeping coach for the 1990 team. Uh, and to, to, to speak to your point, I mean, the, this man wasn't um, part of US, the U.S. Soccer Federation, although his brother was, but a man named Jerry Trecker, um, a writer and high school teacher uh, based in the Northeast, who had this massive satellite dish. I just love this story. He had this massive satellite dish and would record pretty much any soccer game going on in the world. I mean, bearing in mind, this is the 1980s. And the coaching staff got all of their scouting from this guy. And this guy would, you know, trade videotapes with a few other collectors from across the world. And, you know, in 
1989 or 1990, I mean, where else does an American soccer coach go to get intel on the Guatemalan national team, for example, or or the Czechoslovakian yeah. national team? They go to a guy like Jerry, who has a massive satellite dish on his property and can record games, and who, you know, he's he's kind of this this first wave of these like soccer savants that you know you come across on on Twitter and whatnot, who um just know everything about every player you've never heard of and probably a lot more than some paid scouts do so anyway this is kind of the the state of american soccer in the 80s this is what they're working with this is what they had to work with this is all they had and at one point you i think you actually describe it as sort of the nadir of of american soccer uh the like the journey to the 90 world cup really started at the bottom of where u.s soccer stood like we there was no uh, outdoor professional league the indoor professional leagues were hanging on by uh, a thread they uh and beyond that they were uh they were playing a sport that wasn't even sanctioned by fifa and uh and and here we are embarking on this journey like you said with no like with all these players who aren't professionals, who who don't really have any, or certainly aren't professionals in a in the way that we would recognize now, uh, you know, how do they even go about putting together a team uh, of players at that point? Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I mean, the '80s were, like you said, just this absolute low point. I think that the, the nation and and the, the 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 people of soccer were were really licking their wounds after the demise of of the NASL. And the players, especially that you referred to, you know, they had grown up idolizing all these NASL players. What's so interesting is you talk to all the all the team members of 1990, most of them at least, and they all grew up going to games. It was their influence was the NASL, which is so cool. And of course, you know, as a kid, they dream of playing in it one day and they grow up and they're ready for it. And it's not there anymore. And kind of neither was a sport of soccer for the most part. And so they call themselves the NASL orphans, which. You know, it's, it's, it's sad, but kind of has a nice ring to it. Um, but, you know, these players were drawn from the college system. You know, for, fortunately, the United States has always had a, a decent, you know, a, a, an amazing college sports system. And, and soccer has always been part of it for the most part. Um, the indoor leagues, as you mentioned. And also, you know, this was the era where and and this is another thing I love just just you know looking back on everything in in hindsight this is really the first uh part of American soccer history where Americans are just starting to go over in Europe uh yeah Christopher Sullivan is playing in Sweden and Hungary Paul Caligiuri playing in Germany um I'm forgetting a couple Tab Tab Ramos was trying out in Spain Bruce Murray and Frankie Klopas were in Switzerland Germany um, but but really, this is the, this is the very beginning of it. And so what American soccer relied upon was a coach such as Bob Gansler, who knew the youth system and the players very well, you know, knew them probably better than anyone, um, it sounds like. And so that's really what we had to draw on. As you say, there were no there were no nationwide outdoor professional leagues. There were these short, sort of short-lived regional ones. And um and and again, a lot of these players were in college. That's that's the reputation the team has, and it's not quite true. It's it's kind of unfair to say they're a bunch of college kids, but but it's certainly not untrue either. 
You know, and, and I guess one of the areas where there was some semblance of a an active soccer soccer culture, where it wasn't really seen as just a kid's game, but it was seen as a as a game that adults would play and adults would sink time into coaching, was in the Pacific Northwest and specifically Seattle. Uh, whether it was FC Seattle or the Seattle Storm, uh, there were there was a team here that was playing mostly against regional uh, opponents, uh, but it it. And I don't know if I think Casey Keller did play uh, on that team, but certainly Chris Henderson did. And uh, I think it's is it Bob Goulet that also uh, was Goulet. here, Goulet, uh, yeah. who was from Tacoma um, and right. played here too. And these were, I don't know, did you get a sense? Did, like, I don't know how much time you like, did you dig into uh, sort of some of the like, whether it was Pacific Northwest or some of these other sort of like soccer hamlets? Like, I guess you, you talk about there being one in the New Jersey area. Uh, yeah. St. Louis was was basically one as well. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, Milwaukee, to a certain extent, that was one of them. It had, you know, these are in, in, in some of those other places, it was um, as much about the ethnic leagues um as anything else and and milwaukee and and like the philadelphia and 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 new jersey areas were were big on that um california was another one right ucla just had this college dynasty at the time where they were just pumping out national team players you know well into the 90s and 2000s this is another seattle connection there siggy schmidt was the was a coach Ah, of ucla at the time correct Uh, and he had and and that's where chris henderson went as well oh there you go yeah um so yeah i mean they're there were these just these sort of little pockets, these like safe havens of soccer in 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 a very like in in a in a landscape that was just so antagonistic towards soccer in that era. And and yeah, the Northwest certainly was one of them. I mean, it's it's kind of interesting. They were sort of more or less in the corners of the country. Right. I guess they are. I hadn't really thought of it that way. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But then. One of the things you talk about in the book that I thought was very interesting is you you sort of paint a picture of uh, a a match in St. Louis and St. Louis was sort of seen as the like maybe that was like the center all these the four corners and then there was St. Louis in the middle there uh, but it was like the one place where they could play a home match on a real soccer field and expect there to be American fans you know actually cheering for the home team. Whereas almost anywhere else in the country, if they played a home game, they sort of assumed it was going to be overrun by uh, expats. Yeah, very much so. Uh, in in fact, on Twitter uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, I hate starting a sentence with on Twitter, but um, a couple of weeks ago. Well, it, won't, it won't mean anything in a couple of weeks, probably. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, true. Uh, someone had sent me a newspaper clipping from uh, it, it was it was a match report where the U.S. had played an exhibition match against Chivas in, I believe, 1988 in Orange County. And there wasn't a single American fan in, in the stands. I mean, like, not a single one. I, I, I don't know, maybe like a, a wife or a girlfriend or something. But um, <laughs> it was, yeah, and it was, I mean, so every time you had the U.S. Soccer Federation scheduled a match in California or Florida, I mean, that was kind of what they, that was the bargain, I guess, in order to sell tickets. Um, St. Louis, though, always kind of had its own thing going on. Um, the the last World Cup that the U.S. had been in, um, that team was made up largely of of players from St. Louis, which is interesting. And so uh, there was a real soccer tradition there, and that extended to 
uh, Anheuser-Busch, the most famous, you know, business out of St. Louis. And Anheuser-Busch actually paid for and built that St. Louis soccer park, um, mm. which was this, I mean, I, I kept referring to it as, as their little aluminum chapel. And, you know, it was, it was cute. Um, it was, I wouldn't say quaint, but, and, and it's still around, by the way, I shouldn't be talking about it in past tense, but uh, aluminum bleachers, you know, it's, it's just this like slice of Americana when you, when you go and look back at the, at the videos, it's, you know, families and um, Budweiser's handing out these branded signs that say go USA. And the coolest thing though, about seeing that is, so it's August 13th, 1988 um, final, final game of the second round of CONCACAF qualifying. The winner moves on to what we later call the hex, like the final round to, to qualify for the World Cup. U.S. is playing Jamaica, must win game. They ended up winning 5-1, um, thank, thank goodness. But in the pregame, uh, announcer J.P. Del Camera says, uh, he's, he's the camera's panning over this lovely St. Louis soccer park, and he says, it's the only facility of its kind in the country, and hopefully one day there will be many more of these or something like that. And just, you know, to, to hear that now in 2022 and, and, and to see what we have going for us in this country, is so cool. Yeah. It, it's, un, I mean, it really is unreal. And like, I don't think I need to tell our listeners this, but you know, you have something like, I don't know, 20, 20 odd uh, first team or uh, MLS teams are playing in soccer specific stadiums. And then you have like another dozen or so in the USL that are playing in, in, uh, in these lower divisions or in these soccer specific stadiums. And um, yeah, it's just kind of amazing, an amazing journey that we've taken uh, as American soccer fans. It's incredible how far we've come. It, it is. I mean, the, the sense from this team and, and, and everyone I talked to around, around soccer, who was covering soccer at that time is that the sport was just totally alienating to, to most Americans. Um, you know, it was it was a sport for the quote unquote others, which you know is 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 sort of code for um, not real Americans, I suppose. Right. And uh, it was just it was hated and it was mocked, and people just sort of went along with it without thinking. And it's taken a long time, but you know, it's it's so cool to see it. Um, I hate to say accepted, but you know, it is. It's it's cool to see it be mainstream now. You know, one of the other things that you you mentioned in the book that I I don't think I understood, uh, I had no appreciation for really, uh, and I was taken aback when I read this was uh, you talked about in the qualifying process there was a real sense among the players and among the heads of the organization that qualifying for 1990 wasn't literally required uh, in order to to finalize the hosting rights for 1994, but there was a real sense that if that the rug might be pulled out from under them. And I guess, can you just speak to what that, like how, how real of a sense that was and, and how that sort of impacted everything else that was going on? Yeah, that's interesting. It was never. So the U S soccer federation had won the rights to host the 1994 World Cup on July 4th, 1988. Uh, how, but that was before qualifying was, was, you know, finalized for the 1990 World Cup. And so right after the U.S. was awarded the 1994 World Cup, 
to host. Um, U.S. Soccer Federation had had a, a annual meeting in Philadelphia, and from what people who who were there tell me, it, it was this big black tie affair, and you know, uh, Sepp Blatter and 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 uh, FIFA Royal Brass were there, and people who were there say there was just this sort of weird whiff of uncertainty about it, and you know, it's. <laughs> it's not hard to imagine that with FIFA, everything is, is somewhat conditional. But uh, so there was that kind of lingering feeling. And, and, and there were some some ongoing disagreements, from what I understand, uh, that, that lasted pretty far uh, in, into the future uh, about the 1994 World Cup. And that's a whole other topic. But then it also extended all the way through CONCACAF qualifying, where leading up to that final pivotal game against Trinidad, which the anniversary is coming up here um, a week from Saturday, November 19th, which I think should be a much bigger uh, calendar date in, in terms of U.S. soccer history. Uh, leading up to that game, you know, the, the U.S. squad, it was it was huge and they, their backs were against the wall. There would be no soccer for them to play uh, if, if the U.S. didn't qualify. Their, these contracts that the Federation had issued them, those would be gone. Uh, they, to like, to make matters worse on top of all that stuff, there was this rumor that had been sort of circulating through camp that FIFA really would take the world cup away. And that was their meal ticket. You know, that's, that's sort of what they obviously wanted to obviously wanted to play in 1990, but you know, the world cup coming home in 1994, like that was just, that was the prize right there. And so I mean, you talk about motivation for winning that game against Trinidad. That was as if they needed more. Um, that was it. Um, again, with with rumors, it's just hard to substantiate anything. But, you know, it, in terms of it being a rumor, that was very real. And it was felt. And then if you I, I just think it's an amazing thing to juxtapose that against the canvas that is going to be the 2026 World Cup. And here we are. And soccer is still you know, still like 50 years later, still like considered the sport of the few or 30 years later after that, uh, is still considered the, the sport future. Uh, but there is a real palpable sense that this to me is going to be like, a, a like a tectonic shift in the way that soccer is perceived in this country. Uh, if you just look at the platform that we're building off of now versus what the platform we were, I mean, we, when 1994, we were really like these were these were mom and pop operations uh, in comparison. Oh my gosh, yeah, it really was. And and the interesting thing, well, so the interesting thing about about what you said and and about 1994 is one of the things that intrigues me about this 1990 team is yes, they were the first to qualify for the World Cup in 40 years, but that's another way of saying they were the first ones to successfully. Uh, make it through CONCACAF qualifying, which we hadn't done, and which which was very difficult for them and remains, you know, certainly not easy. And so what I love about this team and, and, and their whole story is that it shows that um, doing anything for the first time is super difficult. And you to have to figure out how to do something as, as you're going about it is 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 super hard. And they did it. And so all of the <laughs> all of the lessons they learned in 
making the World Cup and in appearing at the World Cup and being at the World Cup and how to behave at the World Cup and learning where to stay and all this stuff. I mean, there's this sort of comedy of errors that's that's in the book about about all the things that, that sort of happen to them. You know, I mean, it's no surprise that once, you know, when you're after you're away from the World Cup for 40 years, once you qualify, you like you have no idea what to do. There's like there's no institutional right. knowledge. You know, it's like, how do we get to the moon again? But so that's that's a very long way of saying that all of the things they learned in qualifying for 1990, they were taking copious notes. And that's one of the major, major reasons, if you talk to, to folks who were at the Federation at the time, that the 1994 World Cup was such a success, um, just from infrastructure wise and logistically and and all these kinds of things. So it is going to be really exciting to see um what what 2026 turns into just with this whole body of knowledge that we've built up to like you said yeah and and i think it's also worth keep in mind that 1990 team the fingerprints are still like or not the fingerprints the so many of those people are still very important in the world of american soccer Uh, i mean people people like peter vermees and and chris henderson and you just go down to brian bliss and you just kind of go down this list of guys that are still like leading teams or uh, very intimately involved in the game and in other ways. And I don't think it can be, it's not hard to imagine an alternate history where, you know, 1990 doesn't happen and, and everything, and maybe 94 is not as successful and, and everything goes in a very different direction. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's so easy to see that happening. And to your point, one of the coolest things I think that, talking to all these players, they, they bring it up, you know, but they, just the fact that most of them are, are, are still around in the game. I mean, I can only think of one who's John Stolmeyer. He was kind of the, the hard man holding midfielder of the team. He's, he's works in investments right now, but literally everyone else, it seems is still involved in soccer and they created this world for themselves, which I think is, is so cool. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, good for them. It, it, it's amazing. There's still these sort of quiet figures, you know, a, a guy like Peter Vermees or certainly Casey Keller um, are, are very visible and, and others, but you know, there's, there's so many others that are just quietly coaching, you know, um, a, a D2 or D3 college team, right. Or, you know, have their own soccer academies or, or whatever, but they're still earning a living off the game and um, get, and certainly giving back to it. It's, it's very cool. And like you say, <laughs> If they hadn't got it done, I mean, there might not there, those opportunities wouldn't have been there. Absolutely. Who knows, I mean, who who knows what what the what soccer would look like right now? Yeah. You know? No, I, I I totally agree. Um, it's 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 not hard to imagine alternate uh, histories that that don't have soccer nearly as prominent in them. Uh, but uh, probably a good place to to call this. You are going to be in town next week at Elliott Bay Books. Tell tell people how they can. Uh, what's going on there? Yeah, so uh, having a live event for the uh, New Kids in the World Cup release. Um, it'll be at 7 p.m. Uh, I'll be there with Nicholas Biella, the president of uh, American Outlaws Seattle. We'll be chatting about uh, about the U.S. men's national team, past, present, and future, uh, about all the details in the book, and looking ahead to the World Cup. And there'll be a fun after party nearby. We'll have some, some goodies and some giveaways and whatnot. And uh, 
honestly, it should be a, a, a really fun night right ahead of the World Cup and a few days before the U.S.'s first game. Yeah, it should be good, a very good timing on the release of this. I'm sure that was, uh, I, I have to assume that was that was all planned out and was probably ready six months ago, but you wanted to hold off, right? <laughs> <laughs> it was, you know, well, that that's what's so interesting about the about the book world is people were preparing me about how slowly the book world moves. Everything moves so slow. Every decision takes ages. And yet they planned, they planned this out like two and a half years ago or something. Nice. And I thought, yeah, that's genius. Not only that, but um, I, I should mention it as well, you know, uh, coming out be right before Christmas is also good timing for a book. I suppose it is. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good point. <laughs> good. Very good point. Well, uh, thanks for doing this and hopefully people go out and, and see you and, uh, Welcome back to Seattle. This is going to be a, a return a return trip for you, I guess. That's right. I can't wait. I've been looking forward to this ever since I put it on the calendar, and uh, I hope to hope to see everyone out. It's going to be fun. I look forward to chatting soccer with you all. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, with that, I'm Jeremiah O'Shan. Uh, this is the Sounder at Heart podcast, and we will catch you next time.